Hello, this is Brian from Living in the End Times with Amos and X. As always, thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please be sure to follow us on social media. Give us a favorable rating on the podcast app of your choice, say CastBox or Podcast Republic. And most importantly, support us through Patreon at patreon.com slash endtimespodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash endtimespodcast, one word. And thank you in advance.
Good evening and good night. <laughs> How are you doing, Amos? Good. How are you, Brian? I'm all right. All right. Who was that? That was a Pup from Toronto, at Familiar Patterns, as per the theme of our show. There we go. That was super... That was engaging. I liked it a lot. <laughs> uh, so we have a, a, a lot in store for you, of course, uh, dear listener. I wanted to start, uh, not that I, well, I don't want to start, but I just thought it might be worth men- mentioning that everybody in my circle, I don't know about yours, Amos is chatting about this whole Game of Thrones thing, and I ain't never watched it, and I don't, in part because I don't care, right? Um, you know, we've talked about this before. I think you and I are sort of maybe more um, more interested in the sci-fi view of things for a number of reasons, whether it's it seems more progressive, it's looking forward, it's whatever. Um, and I've been trying to figure out, though, why is everyone so into the show? Um, and it's the last season, and everyone's making a big deal about it. And I thought, you know, I was being my pretentious, self-righteous self, <clears throat> who is, um, you know, I guess, wanting to be above those people, right, so to speak. Um, in part for a number of reasons. Again, I, I want to look forward, not backwards. A show like that's looking back in time. Hobbits and dwarves, whatever. Who cares? Um, but then I started thinking, you know, maybe the re- maybe a show like that is incredibly popular because not because it's you know people are conservative or something or they like looking backwards rather than forward, but maybe that show is just a perfect reflection of kind of where we are and where we're headed. I mean, we're in neo feudal times, right. and maybe people just see their lives when they watch that show. Yeah. <laughs> so, I tried to appreciate it more on that level. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I haven't really seen much of it. I, 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 I fucking hate fantasy, like right. so fundamentally. I, I, I mean, I watched all those Lord of the Ring movies. Those are, they're okay, right? Um, but I was also like eighteen years old. Yeah, and it's just like a huge, amazing spectacle. Um, but yeah, with Game of Thrones, I never. It, it seemed. Like, even with sci-fi, which I agree, I'm, like, more on the sci-fi side, heavy. I guess that's kind of reflected in what we talk about on the show. Um, but the... Even... I mean, there's certainly sci-fi that I can't watch because it's right. aesthetically so bad. Sure. And that was my primary, like, opposition to Game of Thrones. Besides, I don't care about fantasy. Um it seemed so fucking bad. Like, it looked like shit. Everything I saw looked like shit. All the acting seemed like sh- just shitty. Granted, I've never watched a season. Um, <laughs> and I even had somebody, like, ruin some of the big, like, turning point moments by just mm-hmm. showing them, me clips of them just sure. to, like, poison the water, <clears throat> which I normally never do, even if I don't want to watch something. Right. Um, but, yeah, that that was, even at the time, what you're saying about living in neo-feudalism and um, all this. I mean, game at least the early seasons when I was more, when I was in a closer orbit to people who are super invested in it, it, it seemed like there was this neo-pagan thing going on mm-hmm. that was just boring to me. Um, right. And, like, I've certainly heard strong defenses of the show from different people, even people who hate fantasy. Uh, they claim that, like, basically, like, the... The show isn't about all that. It's about the politics sure. of, <clears throat> like, the court and all this kind of thing. All these different um, regions and whatever. I guess, like, playing civilization, maybe. Mm. Um, but still, I still haven't brought myself to watch it. But I, I'm like I'm like that with TV. It... <laughs> 
like uh this is maybe dated now but for years and years and years all people would talk about is the wire the wire is the best sure. show of all time blah 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 i've tried maybe three times to get through the first episode and i can't it's so bad um and so like that to me is I guess the where it lands, but at the same time, like I'm not opposed to watching. I might end up watching Game of Thrones like end to end and just see what happens if I get hooked, which I'm sure I will if most other people do. But yeah, I don't have any. I don't need to. I don't need to pretend. Yeah, I don't need to pretend that we're in neo feudalism. I was gonna say yeah, we're, <laughs> it's too depressing because it reminds me of where we're at anyway. Right. I want to see what things are going to be like in the future. Yeah. Okay, so. Maybe it's a lead in here. On that note, yeah. Um, so I have I just some we have sort of a narrative of how we're gonna follow. So these might seem disparate at first, but it'll tie together later. So the first thing I want to just briefly touch on is the fish apocalypse. Um, the so this article is from CBS News. Oh shit. Oh, this is old. My bad. We'll just skip that. We'll get to climate change later. Um, so maybe uh, well, I was going to say, I've seen recent stuff about this anyway. I mean, maybe okay. the article's old, but they think the the, uh, the the incidence is still happening or increasing of yeah. salt fish dying off and so on. Right. So the, the article I was looking at was like from 2006, apparently, but um, it was saying the fish apocalypse was likely by 2048. Basically, there would just be no fish left because of climate change and overfishing and all that kind of stuff. Um, actually, we'll just leave that because we're going right. to get to climate change later. Uh, this one's a little, this one's interesting. So this is from the New York post. Um, this is February, but nevertheless, 80% of priests in the Vatican are gay, according to this new book. Uh, so a large majority of the priests in Vatican in the Vatican are gay, although many are not sexually active in new book claims. A total of about 80% of the most revered clerics in the Roman Catholic church are homosexual, despite the church's opposition to gay rights. According to the extensively researched book by French journalist Frederick Martel, the uh, gay priests adhere to an unspoken cold code called the closet, where it is understood that, for instance, a cardinal or bishop who denounces homosexuality is more likely to be gay, according to the book In the Closet of the Vatican. Another controversial claim in the book is that Colombian cardinal Alfonso Lopez Turillo defended the church's positions on homosexuality while hiring male prostitutes, according to The Guardian. The author said he conducted 1,500 interviews with 41 cardinals, 52 bishops, and Monsignor's 45 papal ambassadors or diplomatic officials, 11 Swiss guards, more than 200 priests and seminarians. The book attempts to expose a clerical culture of secrecy and the double lives of priests. So, obviously, there's this... It goes beyond hypocrisy. Now, let's leave aside the pedophilia question because we don't want to draw a false equivalence between pedophilia and homosexuality because that's not that's not true. Right. That's bullshit. Um, but the just the sheer fact of like at least in modern times, a fundamental precept of uh, you know, or maybe even postmodern times, the strong opposition to gay. Uh, to homosexuality within the Catholic Church, as well as obviously other American evangelical and Methodist and whatever, uh, LDS even, all these American Christian churches have just been vehemently anti-homosexual for so long. And now we see that like the top brass are all gay. The, and the more anti-homosexual are the, they are, the more likely they are to be gay. Um, 
No, it, this is both an expose and a, a whistleblowing sense of sort of exposing how corrupt this is at an explicit level, ideologically, but then also like how much, how seriously can we take an institution like this? Now, the Catholic Church is already completely discredited by the expose of all the sexual abuse. You know, institutionally in the church, we see now just like the other major domino of whatever Catholic political ideology is. You know, next they're going to, the only thing to, that would shut it down then, the third leg would be if they're all also abortionists at the same time. And that's right. And perform them in the back after, you know, and then you can get, right. you can have they, that. The, yeah. They themselves performing the abortions <laughs> right. is what I mean. And yeah. then they give you confession mm-hmm. shortly after and or themselves. Um, yeah. So I, I don't, I don't have a lot to say uh, to this point other than it's, you know, I was raised, I think we discussed this in a Catholic sort of uh, church. I went to Catholic school and all that stuff. And it's, I certainly never, um, I, to my knowledge, I wouldn't be surprised if this was true of some of the folks um, that were ministering me or my friends or family at the time. But again, it was um, it never my church has never reached the level of sort of the abuse stuff that I'm aware of. Right. It was, I mean, it was, it was it was as far as religious upbringings go, it was fine. Um, but I, I mean, for what it's worth. Um, I'm not a part of that institution anymore for a number of reasons, and it includes this again, not not because folks are gay, but it's the the uh, the sexual abuse that was covered up and the corruption. Right. So, okay. Um, and then the last like part of this. Well, not sorry, not the last part. The, so the next thing is that Texas funds herbicides to fight border crossings, and so they're literally talking about this is functionally chemical weapons. So Texas is paying ten million dollars to. Um, use herbicides on like a uh, brush cover or whatever that would hide people crossing borders. Now, obviously like, so what's the, per- so napalm. Yeah. So, and that's exactly right. So that was the pretense for Vietnam using agent orange was they're trying to kill all the, all the over, overgrowth to what I, I don't know, reveal VC positions, but obviously it's just chemical warfare. And so this is this will set an extremely dangerous precedent because obviously um, none of the people crossing the borders who have any contact with law enforcement have anything like civil rights that are uh, observed in any mm-hmm. discernible way. And so this just gives them another tool to attempt to punish people for crossing borders, you know, climbing under razor wire with children and just because they have literally no other option. So the absolute like inhumanity is intensifying as things get worse. Yeah. We hadn't touched that issue for a while, but I think since we last last brought it up, there's a second or another wave of so-called caravan heading North and so on. And, you know, it's in the news, but it's, I don't know if it's something that even (laughs) the news media pays that much attention to anymore. Right. Um, And even so, I mean, to your point though, this, this headline too, I hadn't heard that or seen that. Um, And that's the kind of thing that should be covered. Yeah. But, and then sort of round out the horror and to allow us to transition into talking about Joe Biden, the minister of death, Alabama, uh, there's a new Alabama abortion bill that is, so Alabama passes abortion uh, sorry, Alabama abortion bill, House passes ban, including incest and rape. Um, 
So Bill making it a crime for a doctor to perform an abortion pass in the Alabama House of Representatives Tuesday, 74 to 3. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rep. Terry Collins, Republican of Decatur, said the goal of the bill is to bring legislation to the Supreme Court in order to overturn Roe v. Wade and change a country's abortion laws. 66 of 104 House members signed on as co-sponsors for the bill. The bill would make it a Class A felony for a doctor to perform an abortion and a Class C felony for attempting to perform an abortion unless there's a serious health risk to the mother. HB 314 does not include any exceptions for instances of rape or incest, which has garnered criticism from both pro- and anti-abortion groups. Uh, Rep. Anthony Daniels, Democrat from Huntsville, asked Collins to amend the bill to make exceptions for rape and incest. Collins said she would not take any amendments to the bill because she wants the focus of the bill to be overturning Roe. The amendment was tabled on a 72 to 26 vote. Um, I don't know how far I need to get into this, but basically like this, so this is, they're loading the, they're loading the gun to try and um, set back women's rights a hundred years. Now, uh, abortion rights have been stripped um, systematically for all, ever since Roe v. Wade mm-hmm. uh, by just medical schools refusing to teach the procedure. Um, the The biggest thing to me, the, one of the biggest structural things about abortion access in the U.S. is n- number one, it's the it's the, I think it's the largest surgical procedure, um, whatever per capita. Uh, the, the most f- common surgical procedure in the country, yet they don't perform it at hospitals. They make people go to these clinics, mm-hmm. which puts a target on the clinic's back for allowing uh, harassment outside the doors mm-hmm. on the grounds of free speech. Now, here's my question. If somebody had a uh, some sort of religious opposition to performing, f- uh, I don't know, heart surgery or something, because it's, you know, I don't, it, it's it's becoming God or something like Mm -hmm. that. And then they try to block people from getting into a hospital. They would probably go to fucking prison because it's, that's, I mean, that's akin to a war crime. If you think about like, you can't disrupt medical. Like if you even, if someone takes the phone out of your hand during an I know in one call, they go to prison yet people are allowed to protest and mock and, harass women trying to get health procedures at these clinics that again are not tied to a hospital if they were tied to a hospital or regular clinic then there would be massive outcry against these psychopaths uh, protesting this but we treat this as some sort of different unique case for whatever horrific set of backwater reasons Um, if this passes we'll go back to back alley abortions because people will not stop getting abortions just because it's illegal. That's one of the reasons Roe v. Wade was, uh, one of the reasons there was a push to legalize abortion was for that reason, because it endangers having illegal, having abortions be illegal endangers the health of the mother. Now there is a counter, we should point out why, what, one of the hidden reasons why Roe v. Wade was allowed to go through in the first place was the, there were underground abortion collectives run by women, for women, um, under the name Jane. That was the name of the collective. Uh, this is one of the most radical things that happened in the 20th century, and people don't really know about it. But <clears throat> it got to the point where they got, at first they were reliant on male doctors to perform the 
procedures, you know, for under whatever conditions the doctors wanted. Eventually, they convinced the doctors to train them on the abortion procedure. And so the women themselves were controlling access to abortion and helping women who needed it. And they they got so good at it and so effective that, of course, like when the cops started investigating them, the cops didn't want to process. They didn't want to arrest them because obviously the cops had mothers and sisters and daughters who had needed abortions um, and who had maybe even been clients of Jane. And so one of the arguments put forward by the people involved in Jane was that legalization at that point in that context was ultimately bad for abortion access because Jane was getting so effective and uncontrollable uh, that by legalizing it as Roe v. Wade did, it actually decreased access to abortion. So it was a way to contain what happened rather than, you know, just the obvious, like writing a, just having a congressional bill like Medicare for all would do. Mm -hmm. Medicare for all would functionally legalize abortion permanently because it would tie it to the healthcare system, the Mm -hmm. JPL version of the bill. Um, But we've been in this situation since Roe v. Wade where it's functionally been illegal for most people. Uh, North Dakota has one abortion clinic Mm -hmm. in Fargo. So that's one clinic for 700,000 people. Uh, I think Minneapolis has a couple, but again, you know, or a few maybe, but that's for 11 million people. So, and if the medical schools don't teach the, the procedure and especially in the nineties when abortion doctors are getting murdered, executed, assassinated for their work, this does not lead to a situation that's safe or healthy for women. Now, I'm not saying, therefore, we should get rid of Roe v. Wade. We shouldn't. We should just expand it, we sh- and we should do that via Medicare for All. Um, what this will do, if this is successful, is it will set off a whole um, a- a regressive move. To- I think it will backfire, actually, uh, politically, Feminism is too mainstream. Too many women are way too, and I, I don't. I don't mean this because I think it's the, it's too much. I'm saying mm-hmm. they're too confident and too outspoken for this to be allowed to pass uh, without you know massive resistance. I think that's a good thing um, that women won't let this stand, but it will become this other political battle that we now have to fucking fight, and we don't have time for it. Mm-hmm. So this is why this is, to me, the most apocalyptic news of the day. <laughs> no, right. I, I won't disagree. The um, I guess I'd only say we'll have to wait and see what happens. And uh, obviously, this is just the House uh, in Alabama. We'll see what the Senate does. And then if the governor signs it, all that stuff, there's a lot of steps we need to go through before this is real. But um, it's certainly frightening. Um, and I'm also wondering, too, kind of to your point about, um, you know, women and their confidence and their sort of um, leadership skills and just um, where they're at these days as a category. Um, the Alabama legislature, I'm wondering how old and or male these folks are to sort of create those numbers that whatever it was, 76 to 3 or something. Right. And I wonder if the Senate's the same way. And I wonder if, again how this would play out in different states with this sort of different um, gender and or you know, racial age sort of um, diversity in the legislature. My guess is it wouldn't fly. Right, but, but that's the point, yeah. is that, they, that they're doing it here because it's the worst place right. on earth. That's right. 
or in America. And so, and it might get to the Supreme Court, right? right as a result, um, and it's been my long-standing position that Alabama should be abolished. So I, I think, <laughs> that's right. I think you know, the more I think about this, the more I think that um, the Union didn't go far enough in the Civil War. They should have <laughs> just fucking abolished the South. Don't reconstruct it, right? Just. Literally, like, move everybody out of there, force them to live in the north, and then slowly repopulate the south. Or just let the <laughs> let the let the ex slaves have it, or let the uh, whatever was left of indigenous people have just have the give the cancel the Louisiana Purchase. <laughs> well, then we might lose North Dakota too. But good, <laughs> uh, I can't disagree. Uh, <laughs> what am I supposed to say? So other other than. Um, other than you're right, yeah, it's it's frightening if this reaches the Supreme Court, where um, uh, I think we're in trouble as a as the society that we live in. Right, we live in a society and all that. <laughs> oh, I was going to say too. The only thing I'd add is uh, allegedly, you know, allegedly, Neil Young was right way back in 1974 or whenever he put out that Alabama song, um, and that was what about was a different song? issue. Oh, just Alabama. Um, it's about how racist they are and so oh, on, yeah. and it's it's pretty it's pretty great. Yeah, we have to put it in the show. Oh, yeah, we will, but that will be the last time we talk about Neil Young. Um, <laughs> so moving into <clears throat> the Captain of Doom, the quote-unquote left-wing god of death that, as Chapel refers to, Trump. Um, so this is from Telesur. Pro-Iraq war, Wall Street-friendly Joe Biden joins 2020 presidential race. The former VP faces backlash about his propensity for touching and kissing strangers at political events. Former U.S. President Joe Biden launched a bid for the 2020 presidential race Thursday, now one of about 20 Democrats running against incumbent far-right President Donald Trump. Biden announced his third presidential bid in a YouTube video and across other social media, drawing stark contrast between himself and President Donald Trump at a contest he said was a fight for the future of U.S. democracy. We're in a battle for the soul of this nation, he said. I believe history will look back on four years of this president and all he embraces as an aberrant moment in time. But if we give Donald Trump eight years in the White House, he will forever and fundamentally alter the character of this nation, who we are, and I cannot stand by and let that happen. Excuse me. Trump responded in a post on Twitter, slamming Biden's intelligence and vowing to meet him at the starting gate if the Democratic Party wins his party's nasty nomination fight. The 76-year-old moderate who made... Well, okay, this is Telesur. I thought they were going to be a little more honest, but okay. Uh, 76-year-old moderate who has made his appeal to working-class voters who deserted the Democrats in 2016, a key part of his political identity, is considered too centrist for Democratic Party, yearning for fresh faces and increasingly propelled by its more vocal liberal wing by critics. Biden is one of the few Democratic candidates who voted in favor of the Iraq war. He has also come out in favor of Wall Street. In 2016, Biden was asked about Bernie Sanders, which is likely to be his main challenger in the primaries. He responded, I love Bernie, but I'm not Bernie Sanders. Biden confirmed in a speech in May 2018, I don't think 500 billionaires are the reason we're in trouble. The folks at the top aren't bad guys. Mm. That's his first lie of the campaign. Well, they are the bad guys. Right. I'm not a populist, but that doesn't mean they're not the bad guys. Right. They own, what, the top, like, 20... 80% of the wealth or something in the country is... I mean, like, globally, I think 
2,000 billionaires own more than definitely the bottom half of humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, they shouldn't exist. They shouldn't structurally be allowed to exist. You mean wealthy, wealth as, as a construct yeah. yeah, or as a category? People who... It's not just wealth. It's the ability to control that much political power right. and all that shit. Uh, Critics also said his standing in polls is largely a function of name recognition for the former U.S. senator from Delaware, whose more than four decades in public service includes eight years as the object of President Obama's bromance in the White House. But Wow, this is fucking bad. Jesus Christ, who wrote this shit? Okay, I, I picked this one because it's Telesaurus. So I thought they wouldn't be so positively condescending. Um, <laughs> Biden will travel across the country in the coming weeks, deal detail his plans to, quote, rebuild the middle class. Hmm. Apparently he's going to rebuild the middle class by taking money from Comcast and Blue Cross, you right. know, because Obamacare was such a boon to the fucking middle class. This is thousands and thousands of dollars of insurance premiums and deductibles, but we'll get to that. Kicking off his tour with a visit Monday to Pittsburgh, his campaign said. On Monday, on May 18th, he will hold a rally in Philadelphia to lay out his vision for unifying America with respected leadership on the world stage and dignified leadership at home. Jesus Christ. Philadelphia. Philadelphia is like Stalingrad of America. Like, it's more left-wing than New York. I hope they fucking... I don't know. I hope they shut it the fuck down. Pennsylvania, not far from Biden's home state of Delaware, is a key battleground state and former industrial hub that backed Trump in 2016. The Republican president is seeking to capture the state again, though Democrats saw wins there in 2018 midterm congressional election, which titled the which til, excuse me tilted the House of Representatives against his favorite. Well, I tell you this. Just to interject, if Biden's a nominee, Trump is going to destroy him in in Phil, um, in Pennsylvania. We can fucking that's a hundred percent because Biden will run to the right of Trump, just like Pelosi's to the right of Trump and the Trump base, as Jimmy Doris pointed out. Okay, back to this article: a speculation about his been mounted Biden face new questions about his propensity for touching and kissing strangers at political events with several women coming forward to say. He had made them feel uncomfortable. Biden's struggle in his responses to the concerns, at times joking about his behavior. Ultimately, he half apologized, saying that he recognized Stanford standards for personal conduct had evolved in the wake of the Me Too movement, an international campaign for women's rights to exist without gender violence, which stripped powerful men of their privilege and celebrity, like Harvey Weinstein, Les Moonves, and others who sexually assaulted and harassed women only to lose their personal empire, a multi-million dollar severance package in the downfall. Still looming in his past is the ghost of mishandling of Anita Hill's hearing in which Hill, an attorney and university professor, testified against U.S. Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas, her supervisor at the U.S. Department of Education and Equal Opportunity Commission, accusing him of sexual harassment. Okay, so to interject here. The fact that Biden doesn't get taken down, like Weinstein and Les Moonves and fucking... Who was it? Brian Williams or the no? It was another one of those reporters. Oh, you the uh, the Good Morning America guy, uh, Matt yeah. Matt Lauer. Matt Lauer, sorry, not Brian Williams. Brian Williams is just a warmonger. He's just a liar too. Yeah, uh, or Charlie Rose or whatever. <laughs> there you go. These shitheads get taken down uh, instantly, and Biden's still being propped up. What does that tell us? That tells us that the that the money's behind him. Because mm-hmm. if the money wasn't behind him. 
because there was money behind Harvey Weinstein. Mm. Big, big money behind Harvey Weinstein. He had fucking Mossad agents on some of these accusers. And which is, I mean, that's serious, like heavy hitting counter into that's like a military operation. Um, and he still is getting like dragged, you know, by his neck down the street, so to speak. Um, but Biden just kind of floats mm-hmm. on because one can't imagine that there aren't more stories about Biden. This is mm-hmm. just the shit we see in pictures. Right. And I don't mean to interrupt the reading of that, but I, I don't do again. I don't, yeah, I don't disagree with any of that. And I, just to summarize it, and there's been lots of articles on him and I, I'm agreeing with you and I don't know why um, things, the, the media, of course, but people even on the left and even the liberal left, the sort of moderate left haven't been haven't been harder on him and more critical of him because if we just summarize it real quick, we've got, you know, as a senator, for example, uh, he votes for, and this is the 90s or whatever, even before, Clinton Crime Bill, Defense of Marriage Act, the Telecommunications Act of 96, which have basically destroyed radio, destroyed all these other television, I mean, all these old media industries, and, and consolidated power. of com- uh, the the entire loudspeaker of the media over to Comcast. Exactly, yeah. And so really consolidated the industries in a problematic way for democracy. Uh, you mentioned the Anita Hill stuff already. He voted for the Iraq War, and he, in the 80s and 90s, had a mullet. And so, I mean, that should disqualify him right there, the hair. But it should. <laughs> nonetheless, what strikes me um, of all the commentary articles there have been, um, I think the baffler... Uh, Chicago sort of magazine put out a you know a, a decent story um, recently this week or today about just kind of calling Biden you know a 20th century guy and that's and that's exactly right from the from the handsiness to all the stuff I just mentioned and you mentioned to the whole the notion that he or the fact that he sort of I think kicked off his campaign in an email to folks by quoting you know the Constitution fine this is what it actually says but saying you know all men are created re- equal and not sort of even gesturing toward women right mm-hmm. or people of color sort of like he's his brain is just stuck in a different century and it's going to be 20 years into this century and I don't know if he's the guy to lead the you know the country and the world obviously you don't through- know <laughs> he is not the okay. guy to lead this uh, I mean any of this stuff and I'm just trying to figure out to the point you're making with all this a garbage around him and that history, like how is, how is he still somehow polling so well, if that's true? And I don't even know, we've seen, you know, ways in which those polls are inaccurate and so on, but it's, it's dispiriting in many ways. Well, I have an answer. So we'll just skip the end of that article because it just kind of details a little bit of the Anita Hill thing, but it it doesn't, I thought it was going to get more into the wall street and Iraq stuff, but it doesn't. Um, so here is the answer to your question. Okay. Uh, hours after enter is from Common Dreams, April twenty fifth. Hours entering after entering twenty twenty race, Biden to attend big money fundraiser hosted by Comcast Blue Cross execs. The core values of this nation, our standing in the world, our very democracy, everything that has made America America is at stake. The former vice president said in his announcement. Uh, hours after officially entering the 2020 Democratic presidential field Thursday morning, former Vice President Joe Biden is expected to head to the Philadelphia home of Comcast executive David Cohen for a big dollar fundraiser that will reportedly be attended by Democratic lawmakers, the CEO of insurance giant Independence Blue Cross, and other high-powered party players. Biden launched his presidential bid with a video condemning... Okay, blah, blah, blah. Um, 
As Politico reported, Politico reported on the eve of Biden's 2020 announcement, the former vice president raised a big alarm about fundraising in a conference call with top donors expressing the need to have a big first day haul. The money's important, Biden reportedly said during the call, according to an anonymous participant who recounted the remarks to Politico. We're going to be judged by what we can do in the first 24 hours the first week. While Biden has vowed to join most other 2020 Democratic candidates in rejecting campaign contributions from lobbyists. <laughs> yeah. So that's the new trend. You just say it, and then you just take the fucking money anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, HuffPost's Huff Kevin Robillard pointed out that Biden's planned fundraiser with corporate execs on Thursday shows the limitations of such a pledge. Though Cohen is technically not a registered lobbyist, he directs Comcast lobbying operations. A distinction critics said allows him to skirt federal lobbying regulations. So you don't appeal to you don't have the lobbyists sign the check. You have the lobbyist bosses sign their check. Mm-hmm. According to Philadelphia Business Journal, Cohen sent an email to potential contributors Wednesday soliciting donations of twenty eight hundred dollars, the maximum federal primary contribution for the event. Politico first published uh, the invitation for the large dollar fundraiser. Uh, so it's got. <clears throat> It's got a list of, so it says, Biden for president, please join Ron and David L. Cohen, uh, Honorable Bob Brady, Darren Check, Sandy and Steve Cozen, Michael Glatt, Dan Helferty, uh, Ken Jaron, Alan Kessler, Sharice Liel, Honorable Michael Nutter, Honorable Ed Randell, Marsha and Rob Rubin, Honorable Connie Williams, along with Senator Bob Casey from... Uh, Philadelphia, Representative Lisa Blunt-Rochester from Delaware, uh, Representative Brendan Boyle from Pennsylvania, Representative Matt Cartwright, okay, just just all these corporate shills. Um, as Sludge's David Shaw reported, Comcast has been leading a voice in the telecommunication industry's efforts to oppose net neutrality rules. Since 1996. Spending hmm. millions on lobbying against the laws, against laws at the federal and state levels that would prohibit internet service providers, ISPs, from giving priority treatment to certain types of traffic. In 2006, when he was a senator from Delaware serving on the Judiciary Committee, Biden said he did not think net neutrality rules were warranted. Okay, so he's, a, so he's for totalitarian dictatorship, corporate control of not just, like, traditional media, but all information, information. access. Right. <clears throat> The list of that might, and if that sounds bombastic, I I urge you to do some research on the importance of net neutrality. Um, in uh, the list of executives and other wealthy donors expected to attend Biden's first fundraiser as a 2020 presidential candidate sparked concerns. This is from uh, at Bucksmount DSA. Um, on Twitter, folks helping Biden launch his presidential run. David Cohen, Comcast executive. Dan Hilferty, medical insurance company CEO. Independence Blue Cross. Steve Cozen, union buster. Uh, <clears throat> While Biden clearly joins a crowded race with top name recognition, the status as the last serving Democratic vice president and the front runner in the most national polling. Bullshit. Uh, it has been widely noted that he also begins... His third campaign for presidency, he unsuccessfully ran in both 88 and 2008 with an enormous amount of political baggage. As columnist Jim Newell detailed it's late on Thursday, Biden's biggest challenge in primary will be comprised 
will be, a, excuse me, a compromise path spanning nearly 50 years. The vetting process he'll face in the Democratic Party of 2019 will not be even close to the vetting he faced during his last campaign in 2008. And let's face it, as a middling to lower tier candidate then, he didn't face much vetting at all. The crime bill that he offered in, authored in 1994, authored, so he wrote mm. the Clinton crime bill, basically, is considered by modern, the modern iteration of the party to have been an embarrassment, as is his handling of the Clarence Thomas Supreme Court nomination. Some of his anti-busing rhetoric from the 70s was, even by the standards of 1970s anti-busing rhetoric, astonishing. <laughs> as a senator who for 36 years represented Delaware, a small fiefdom run by banks, his economic record has more than a few blemishes, such as his support for the 2005 bankruptcy reform bill, one of the slimiest pieces of legislation passed this century. In the first presidential primary since 2004, where past votes regarding the Iraq war shouldn't be an issue among major candidates simply because it was so long ago, there's Joe Biden with a vote for the Iraq war on his record. The size of the field is a representation of the candidate's belief that all this will sink Biden unlocking the tentative support for roughly one-third of the party for the taking. The field's bet on Biden's fallibility is now shared among the punditry, too. Everything Biden does will be interpreted through the same knowing lens that he's out of his element, and it's a pity no one was able to dissuade him from launching this last egotistical crusade. That was the interpretation when, in his first public appearance after allegations of inappropriate touching, he crapped, cracked a couple jokes about he, how he had gotten permission to give hugs. No, he crapped a couple jokes. <laughs> yeah. Even the, <laughs> even the delay in his um, launch this week promoted another round of head shaking. When his initial plan to kick off the campaign on Wednesday in Charlottesville, Virginia, followed by a couple of rallies in Pennsylvania, was scrapped. Biden's campaign launch comes as most early polls show the former vice president with a slight lead over Bernie Sanders bullshit uh, for the Democratic nomination. <clears throat> the former I'm not going to get into all the polling shit, but basically the way that they doctor these polls is they don't count anybody under the age of 50 in the polls. They say they don't have enough data on anybody under 50 and how their voting preferences. So they're excluded from consideration. And or it's like card carrying Democrats, not the country. Right. Which, again, they're more, more establishment. Yeah. Um, the former vice president addressed the allegations of inappropriate touching video earlier this month, vowing to be more mindful and respectful of people's personal space in the future. That's my responsibility and I will meet it. So <clears throat> that gives us kind of like an overview of why Joe Biden's a worthless piece of garbage. He's a corporate shill. He is unapologetically so. Um, and he'll smile at you while he does it. I don't mean yeah. to interrupt. I was just going to say, if I, I'm imagining, uh, you know, a Trump versus Biden sort of matchup, for instance, or even, a, you know, maybe a Bernie, a Biden. You've got these two guys who are uh, Trump and Bernie who are, who are not like just going to smile at you, right? Um, you may not like what they have to say. They might be kind of blunt, et cetera, but they're a little more, I mean, they're, they're telling it like they think it is in Trump's case. Um, and with Biden, he just kind of gives you this smarmy stuff and he'll just smile at you and hope you don't notice what's happening, right? Just right. with that so-called, that grin. It is fucking insane to me yeah. that they would put Biden up as their guy mm -hmm. because <clears throat> at least with Hillary Clinton, you could make some weird – like I don't think that it – it didn't play, but you could make an argument that she's, she's a woman. Mm -hmm. And 
if you have that kind of old second wave feminist view of like uh, the point of feminist part of the point of feminism is to get women into positions of power, then you could make that claim. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a, I, I think that's um, a mystification of her actual politics. But regardless, like you have at least that appeal with Biden, you have fucking none of that. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever is abhorrent to Democrats about Trump. And I'm talking about the, the liberal base, mm-hmm. um, people who consider themselves Democrats. There's no, like what, what's the redemptive fucking quality of Joe Biden? There's a lot of that same stuff. Yeah. Like wh- where, where's the advantage? I mean, at least <clears throat> like, at least if they back Kamala Harris, it would have been like, okay, she's black and she's a woman. And I don't know. She's a lawyer. Like you can make these, you can make appeals to this stuff. But Joe Biden is literally this greased up fucking like shithead who he's like as great, like to your point, I guess he's as greasy and smarmy as Trump is. Exactly. He, he might be a little more attractive, I guess. Except he just hides it better and he'll smile at you. Right. Which right. just gets me every time. And it's like, it's this creepy, Oh, it's just an, an unsettling smile rather than a reassuring grandfatherly one. Right. And so Trump will literally wipe the floor with him. That's why in that other article, Trump's like, bring it the fuck on. Right. Trump wants to go up against Biden. Right. That is perfect. I mean, can you imagine? He's just going to fillet him over everything Obama did. Mm. Again, from the left. Right. Like, I, I mean, I'm almost speechless that they're, this is their play. This is fucking insane. They either have to know that he's dead in the water or they are going to push him through until um, there's literally violence on the floor of the convention because right. they've, you know, they're disappearing Sanders delegates or something. Right. Um, and so to add insult to injury or to just further prove this point, we're talking about Biden's history. What about his current position? Biden sides with Trump, Bolton, and Pompeo in backing Venezuela coup effort. Mm-hmm. The Democratic frontrunner characterizes effort to overthrow the elected government of President Nicolas Maduro at gunpoint as just another effort to, quote, restore democracy in Latin America. Despite progressive critics and anti-war voices speaking forcefully against the Trump administration's overt backing of the attempted coup d'etat by right-wing opposition forces in Venezuela on Tuesday, 2020 Democratic frontrunner Joe Biden aligned himself with the White House by throwing his support behind the overthrow effort. The violence in Venezuela today against peaceful protesters is criminal, Biden tweeted on Tuesday. Oh, there's also another article about the opposition forces running over protesters. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Uh, Maduro's regime is responsible for incredible suffering. The U.S. must stand with the National Assembly and Guaido in their efforts to restore democracy through legitimate international monitored elections. But what Biden embraces is an effort to restore democracy. Many foreign policy experts, one's not willing to give the benefit of the doubt to people like National Security Advisor John Bolton, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and President Donald Trump, called something else entirely. A violent effort by Venezuela's right-wing elites led by Guaido, to overthrow the elected government of President Nicolas Maduro. Okay, so when Biden in his campaign announcement says that Trump is an existential threat to democracy or whatever the fuck, Mm -hmm. the way that he proves that is by backing Trump's play to overthrow the Venezuelan government. I mean, am I fucking missing something here? (laughs) Uh, Our co-host is showing me this 
greased up picture of Biden um, glad handing with Bill Clinton in the 90s. Oh, yeah. And just we're looking at Biden's mullet and it's not photoshopped. Yeah. You'll see that later. Um, so, I mean, and then this is. This is a screenshot of a tweet from Code Pink to the people of conscience. Mike Pence, John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, Marco Rubio, Elliot Abrams, and Donald Trump are actively engineering a coup to overthrow a democratically elected Latin American government. Speak out against U.S. imperialism today. So uh, in, a subsequent, in subsequent comments during a campaign stop, Biden called for calm in Venezuela, but also repeated the White House position that Maduro is not, despite his win in last year's contested elections, which opposition largely boycotted the legitimate leader of Venezuela. Look, I, I've been talking to my foreign policy team back uh, uh, home in Washington. I've not seen anything. I think what I understand so far is that uh, Guadalajan Lopez, and I've spent time with his wife when he was in jail, um, is, uh, um, I, think we, I think the anticipation that there was going to be a military rise up uh, has been slightly uh, um, underestimated. And uh, I think what we have to continue to do is make it real clear. That's ridiculous talking about foreign policy and my ice cream. <laughs> but um, I think that it's very important we stay calm here. And uh, what, uh, what I think the, ultimately what's required is for the international community to demand that there be free elections. There's only one democratic election that's taking place in that place, and it's for the assembly. They're the people who were actually democratically elected. Maduro was not democratically elected. And there's got to be a commitment that there be, we hold democratic elections. And that's why it's important we continue to maintain, maintain and increase the confidence that the rest of Latin and South America has in our judgment. And we got to pull people together because I think that's the only way this works without there being some real serious problems. Which all that is just sort of like banal speak for right. we're going to go in and, you know, aim a sniper rifle at his fucking head because we don't like what he's doing. The I was only going to add, it's been interesting to watch this sort of thing from the, again, in terms of the news media and how Biden's taking the position of Comcast or MSNBC or whatever the establishment with regard to this Venezuelan issue and. Uh, you know, the, so the the right or even the, the liberal left in this country will say, oh, that the so-called democratic election was not that democratic, et cetera, et cetera. And they critique Maduro on those grounds. Um, but I saw something I want to say from out of Cuba, from the Grandma newspaper, G-R-A-N-M-A, um, where the headline was, um, you know, coup, violent uh, coup attempt put down. You know, we're doing OK, right. which, which is. And again, just watching those two to complete opposite responses to the exact same event, just watching that play out is, is fascinating. And again, seeing, seeing what Biden is saying here is unsettling. And for what it's worth, do, I, do we know what other candidates have said about this publicly? Yeah, what has Bernie it done? It gets to it? that. Well, oh. it gets to that a little bit here. Um, Biden wasn't alone among Democrats. House Speaker mm. Nancy Pelosi and others expressed support. Uh, for the military uprising launched by Guaido. For critics, however, one of the salient dynamics about Biden's announced support for the U.S.-backed coup in Venezuela in 2019 is what it suggested for vice, the former vice president, is what it suggested for the former vice president has learned or rather not learned about the U.S. Inter about U.S. intervention, a.k.a. meddling in the affairs of foreign nations since his support for the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Mm -hmm. um, so... It, 
and then this is a, grand, a screenshot of Glenn Greenwald tweet. Wouldn't it be ironic if Democrats, after spending three years indignantly protesting, quote, meddling by foreign countries in our internal affairs, end up marching behind the person who said in 2002, this in 2002 about why he supports Bush and Cheney uh, removing Iraq's government? And I'm loading that right now. Week and his address last month to the United Nations General Assembly. This resolution, though still imperfect, deserves our support, and let me explain why. First, the objective is more clearly and carefully stated. The objective is to compel Iraq to destroy its illegal weapons of mass destruction and its program to develop and produce missiles and more of those weapons. President Bush did not lash out precipitously at Iraq after 9-11. He did not snub the U.N. or our allies. He did not dismiss new inspection regimes. He did not ignore Congress. At each pivotal moment, he has chosen a course of moderation and deliberation. And I believe he will continue to do so. At least that is my fervent hope. I wish he would turn down the rhetorical excess in some cases, because I think it undercuts the decision he ends up making. But in each case, in my view, he has made the right rational and calm deliberate decision wow which is significant obviously because he's not saying i also support the iraq war for different reasons he's saying bush was a hundred percent right he just should not sound like an idiot as much so i mean from the the headlines and the articles you've been reading to these uh, audio clips what we're hearing essentially if i'm reading this right is literally a career's worth decades worth of cynicism like the most cynical response to these public events that you could take i mean uh, well the ho- most hawkish sure. i mean it's not yeah. I, I cynicism implies a certain um i don't know e- either that he's bullshitting mm-hmm. or that uh he doesn't believe what he says, and he's just kind of corrupt. I'm sure he is corrupt, but he's also right. committed fucking war hawk, apparently. Yeah, fair enough. I, I mean, I was trying to be charitable and suggest I don't even know if he believes what he's saying, but he's doing it mm-hmm. anyway to yeah. advance his own career, right. et cetera, et cetera. But, but maybe that's not true. Uh, interviewed by, back to this article, interviewed by Democracy Now! early on Wednesday, economist and foreign policy expert Jeffrey Sachs, who directs the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University, and Professor Miguel Tinker Salas of Pomona College discussed what they both agree is a dangerous and counterproductive agenda that leaders like Trump, Bolton, Biden, and Pelosi are now pushing in Venezuela. What's so stupid about these American policies, these neocon policies, said Sachs, is that they do create disaster, but they don't achieve even the political goals of the nasty people like Bolton. It's not as if they're effective and nasty. They're completely ineffective and totally nasty at the same time. (laughs) While acknowledging that Maduro has certainly made mistakes and legitimate criticisms of his government exist, Tinker Salas said the history of the U.S. intervention in Latin America, not to mention elsewhere in the world, Mm -hmm. shows overthrowing governments in this manner doesn't produce the change that most people want. And what it does is it aggravates conditions for the majority of the population. I I was only going to add, yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe you have something to say there, but that we've seen this movie before, right? Right. In in Guatemala in 54 and Chile, and we've seen it in uh, Nicaragua in the eighties and in Venezuela in 2002. Yeah. And, and, and none of this is any different. And the, the outcome is not, it will not be a surprise if we continue down this path. Yeah. Um, and I, all I would add to what he's saying is 100%, but they're not, those political goals are not the goal. The goal is the outcome, which right. is um, 
political chaos, mm -hmm. uh, fractured population, mm -hmm. uh, broken solidarity. Right. What they're trying to do is erase the memory of any improvements that Chavez made right. over the past, over the you know prior decade and a half, because he's so dangerous. Even in his failings to, you know, create like a functionally new economic model based out of left populism. Uh, the hope that he inspired and the mobilization among the population on a mass scale that he gave voice to uh, and the constitutional reforms and all the rest of it, that's what needs to be wiped from people's memories by force. That's the, that is the tradition of, that is the Monroe doctrine <clears throat> that the U S apparently has returned to. Um, not that it ever stopped with Obama, but mm -hmm. it nominally stopped. Kerry said that we're done with it, but apparently that's bullshit. Um, the the coup I should you know update this slightly, but the coup was put down. Uh, didn't work, mm -hmm. thankfully this mm -hmm. this week. Uh, doesn't mean they're done, right. but this one didn't work. Right. Uh, <clears throat> okay, so Sachs, who last week released a detailed study along with economist Mark Weisbrot on the devastating impact that U.S. imposed sanctions have had on the Venezuelan economy added that people backing Guaido and the coup are effectively just embracing normal U.S. right-wing foreign policy. Nothing different. Yep. This is the same foreign policy that we saw throughout Latin America in the 20th century, Sachs added. It's the same foreign policy that we saw catastrophically in the Middle East. This is Mr. Bolton. This is Mr. Bolton's idea of diplomacy. This is Trump's idea of diplomacy. You punch someone in the face, you crush your opponent, you try whatever, whatever way you can get whatever way you can to get your way. It's very simple minded. It's very crude. And he, and, and it must mean it says, and, and concluded. We'll just say he concluded it never works. It just leads to catastrophe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Agreed. But the catastrophe is the fucking point, right? That's the disaster capitalism <clears throat> stuff for the shock doctrine stuff that of course, Naomi Klein, uh, not Naomi. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Sort of documented. I'd only add that, um, again, part of the, Part of the impetus here for folks on the right, I mean, their pretext, much like WMD in Iraq, is that, oh, the people are suffering in Venezuela, this economy has crumbled, Maduro is a failed, it's a failed regime, blah, blah, blah. Uh, much like Cuba, though, and we've discussed some of this, you know, why did the economy crumble in that way? Well, again, American sanctions, sort of refusal to do business, threatening potential business partners that are not America with Venezuela, and you know, destroying their, their oil exports and all that kind of thing have helped create these conditions. That doesn't let Maduro off the hook, um, mm -hmm. necessarily, but it's uh, certainly we helped create that disaster already. I mean, military intervention notwithstanding. Right. And, and we don't, I, I mean, it's, I don't, I, I'm, I'm struggling to find the words to like describe how badly we fucked with Venezuela. Mm -hmm. Um, but like the problem is that they're an oil rich country and we mm -hmm. buy oil from them. That's right. a problem for us. Right. Um, that's what this is about in terms of lever of power rather than a negotiating partner or economic, you know, equal. That's the, that's the fear is that they become an economic mm -hmm. equal mm -hmm. uh, with a left-wing government in the same hemisphere. Okay, so <clears throat> um, I'm not going to th – there's, there's probably more to say about Biden and Venezuela, but I'm going to move on here. So uh, I'll just read the next couple of – headlines letters from biden reveal he sought support of segregation in fight against busing so uh he was opposed to busing meaning uh, uh people aren't familiar in the 70s there was an attempt to uh bus inner city kids into like other neighborhoods to like force uh more direct segregation 
I'm not going to read all of this, but the fact that he, you know, this is from CNN. Um, well, I'll just read the beginning. Joe Biden's road to the third presidential bid has been lined with a series of explanations and apologies illustrating the challenges of preparing a long record of public service for fresh scrutiny under the spotlight of the 2020 campaign, yet he rarely discusses one of his earliest and most controversial issues he championed in the Senate, his fight against busing to desegregate schools. It was more than four decades ago as a battle raged across the country and in Congress over sending white students to majority black schools and black students to majority white schools often far away from their own neighborhoods. Biden forcefully opposed the government's role in trying to integrate schools, saying he favored desegregation, but believed busing did not achieve equal opportunity. In a series of never-before-published letters from Biden, which were reviewed by CNN, the, strengths of his, the strength of his opposition to busing comes into sharper focus, particularly how he followed the lead of and sought support from some of the Senate's most fevered segregationists. My bill strikes at the heart of the injustice of court-ordering ordered busing. It prohibits the federal courts from disrupting our educational system in the name of the Constitution, where there's no evidence that the government officials intended to discriminate. Biden wrote to fellow senators on March 25th, 1977. I believe there's a growing sentiment in the Congress to curb unnecessary busing. Biden, who at the time was 34 and serving his first term in the Senate, repeatedly asked for and received the support of Senator James Eastland, a Mississippi Democrat, chairman of the Judiciary Committee, and a leading symbol of Southern resistance to desegregation. Eastland, Eastland frequently spoke of blacks as an inferior race. Dear Mr. Chairman, Biden wrote on June 30th, 1977, I want you to know that I very much appreciate your help during this week's committee meeting attempting to bring my anti-busing legislation to a vote. Two weeks later, Biden followed up with a note to Eastland to thank you again for your efforts in supporting my bill to limit court-ordered busing. Biden, who would go on to lead the Judiciary Committee a decade later, got his start on the panel under Eastland. Few senators were more virulently outspoken against desegregation than the Mississippi senator who was known for incendiary floor speeches on race. Yet Biden invited Eastland to speak on the Senate floor in support of his anti-busing bill. I want, you, I want to personally ask your continued support and alert you to our intentions, Biden wrote on August 22, 1977. Your participation in floor debate would be welcomed. The letters which are filed away in Eastland's archives at the University of Mississippi offer a window into the robust nature of Biden's support of anti-busing bills. While most of Biden's legislative efforts failed, he was not a passive observer like many fellow Democrats of that era who sought to balance the anger of white constituents surrounding school busing without blocking the next step in the expansion of civil rights. Okay, I'm gonna, I don't want to keep reading this because I'm going to fucking freak out, but... <clears throat> Basically, Biden is enlisting the support of, like, the most horrific Dixiecrat probably left in the Senate in mm -hmm. 1977, at least I hope, um, who was a racist. So Biden's literally a fucking segregationist. And somehow he's in the running still. I mean, this doesn't even this doesn't even register as insane. This is worse than Trump. Like, this is, like, objectively worse than Trump. Or as bad as the shit he says. I mean, I, I don't even, I mean, what do you... It's all I was going to say is, that, again, I wanted to, <clears throat> the charitable side of me wanted to, again, look at this as a cynical move, that he doesn't believe this stuff, he's just trying to advance his own career, his own but record. But who cares, though? Right, no, but that's what I was going to get at, is it's, um, it almost, it doesn't matter in right. the end, right? And that this, um, such, I mean, those, those statements he's making, or those letters he wrote, um, sort of make it, 
make me skeptical whether it was cynical anyway. And again, the outcome is the same, but um, I don't, I don't even know if that's true anymore. Right. And this is on fucking CNN. This is like, this is the supposedly like the the middle of the road. They're, they are fucking flaying him over this Mm -hmm. as they should. Mm -hmm. Um, I I mean, this is almost unbelievable. Like, and we're not even talking about how bad the crime bill was yet, but like this, this is as low as you can get. Like everything the democratic party pretends that they never were, um, this just like brings it out of the open. So he did this in 77. Okay. He didn't do this in 1941. He didn't do this in 1889. He did this in 1977. And so is it any surprise to us? Here's why it's not cynical. We, we then can see why he was the one coming down on Anita Hill Mm -hmm. because he he's racist and obviously Clarence Thomas is black, but it just gives him the opportunity. It's like Bill Maher. It's like when Bill Maher used to... The the reason I stopped watching Bill Maher a long time ago when there weren't, weren't many options, even like remotely liberal on TV, was Bill Maher would relentlessly... Every time he interviewed a black woman, he was just he would just rake her over the coals for no reason and like humiliate her every time because he's a fucking racist. This that's Joe Biden. That, that's Bill Maher in power. That's mm-hmm. Joe Biden's history. So I mean, whatever it takes to stop this piece of garbage. I mean, I don't even. What can you imagine? What Trump would do with this shit? I mean, this is like giving Trump, you know, dual wielding grenade launchers, <laughs> and Biden's got a fucking pencil. <laughs> it's fresh meat for a rabid dog, isn't it? Yeah, or whatever. Hungry tiger. And then we, we might say, well, but isn't he a union guy? This is from In These Times. Mm-hmm. It's getting exhausting, but we'll get to the fun stuff in a second. Biden says he's the workers' candidate, but he's worked to cut Medicare and Social Security. Former President Joe Biden initially, blah, 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 is positioning himself as a defender of the embattled working class, giving speeches to union audiences, tapping organized labor for early support, walking the stop-and-shop picket lines. They should have fucking beat the shit out of them. <clears throat> and par- pairing his announcement with a reportedly impending endorsement from the International Association of Firefighters who have pledged to help him raise money. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting violence against Biden. I'm just saying, like, that's what you do on a picket line is you get rid of scabs. So I'm just making a historical point. Um, so... Bur- Brian puts away his knife. <laughs> However, an episode from the not-so-distant past cuts against his friend of the working-class image. Biden's leading role in the Obama administration's 2011 efforts to slash the deficit by offering Republican spending cuts to Medicare and Social Security. At the time, the GOP had just finished giving then-presidential President Obama a shellacking in the 2010 midterms with a brand-new majority in the House to show for it. Obama was largely focused on three things, raising the debt ceiling to avoid a looming and potentially catastrophic debt default, avoiding a government shutdown, and reaching a grand bargain with the Republicans over spending, including to so-called entitlement programs like Social Security and Medicare that had long been in the crosshairs of the GOP and other deficit hawks. Obama had been open about his plans to take on Social Security and Medicare, pledging to the staff of the Washington Post only a few days before his 2009 inauguration that he would spend some political capital on this. He tasked Biden, a veteran congressional wheeling and dealing, 
with spearheading negotiations. Biden had ambivalent, an ambivalent relationship to, with, the, with government spending considered in 1980s to be one of the Democratic Party's new neoliberals. Biden called then for a spending freeze on Social Security and a higher Social Security retirement age. In 1995, he cast his vote for a balanced budget constitutional amendment despite his early criticisms of it. The choice was, he said, an imperfect amendment or continued spending. When he ran for president 12 years later, he again called the Social Security retirement age to go up. In journalist Bob Woodward's 2012 book, The Price of Politics, he portrays Biden during Obama's first term, eager to sacrifice Social Security and Medicare for the sake of bipartisan compromise and achieving what would be in the eyes of Washington, a political victory. Okay, I'm not going to keep going, but <clears throat> so he's a racist. He's anti He's a... Uh, anti-desegregation he's a segregationist functionally uh he's a war hawk he is a right-wing extremist when it comes to venezuela and he wants to kill your grandma (laughs) or starve her to death sure so here's what i here's my takeaway at least from this if we get biden and send it trump it's going to be fucking worse because trump can't get any of this shit done Mm -hmm. because he's he's uh, he's radioactive. Like nobody wants, nobody can get through the Republican agenda. The Republicans had control of everything, and then they they couldn't do anything in Trump's first two <laughs> right. years. Thank God. Right. Or I mean, they couldn't do half the shit they wanted to do. If you get Biden in there, then he's he he can he can work Washington because right. he's better at it. Smile at you. He has fifty yeah. years experience. He's got all these connections. That's his town. Let's say. Um, you're going to see this Republican agenda get pushed through in the name of whatever bullshit. So yeah, right. he has to be stopped right. at all costs. No, no green new deal, no Medicare for all, no just about yeah. anything. Right. The opposite. Um, okay. So now on to the antidote here. Um, so, and then there's the fake polls that I won't get into, but, um, Here's Bernie Sanders' response to Joe Biden. Former Vice President Biden at his first campaign event today uh, was in front of Firefighters Union. Obviously, uh, critical organized labor is critical uh, support uh, in in a Democratic primary. Are you concerned that that Biden can make inroads there, that Biden has a leg up there? Well, look, I'm running against, I think, 19 other people. So (laughs) I'm concerned about everybody. But I think when people take a look at my record, Uh, versus Vice President Biden's record. I helped lead the fight against NAFTA. He voted for NAFTA. I helped lead the fight against PNCR with China. He voted for it. I strongly oppose the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He supported it. I voted against the war in Iraq. He voted for it. So I think what I hope, Anderson, what this campaign is about, and I got to tell you, I like Joe Biden. Joe is a friend of mine. But I think what we need to do with all of the candidates, have a issue-oriented campaign, not personal attacks, but talk about what we have done in our political lives, what we want to do as president, and how we're going to transform our economy so that it works for all of us and not just the 1%. So that's the solution. How do you destroy Joe Biden? Mm-hmm. You keep talking about policy. About facts. Yeah. You talk about what he fucking did. You talk about what he believes as, as evidenced by what he did. Uh, <clears throat> and you talk about the future that we could have. So along those lines, 
uh, just to kind of ratchet up how cynical Biden is, I'm going to read a couple. These are memes of sorts, but they're not like funny. Uh, so this is this is Joe Biden's quote about millennials. The younger generation now tells me how tough things are. Give me a break. And then they start like people start laughing. And he's like, no, no, I have no empathy for it. Give me a break. And then here's the addendum. These are headlines. Millennials rack up the most medical debt and more frequently. Millennial homelessness is on the rise. And millennials face $1 trillion in debt as student loans pile up. Mm-hmm. Now, here's where it gets a little bit. Funny. Nothing he had to deal with as a, a boomer. Nothing he had to deal with it as a boomer. And also, nothing that he himself had any part in uh, sure. creating. Right. Uh, okay, so then this is, this is a screenshot of a tweet from 8-Bit Idiot. Uh, this is a quote from Biden. When the stock market crashed, FDR got on the television and didn't just talk about the, you know, the prin- princes of greed. He said, look, here's what happened. Uh, and then the response is, FDR wasn't president in 1929, and home TV sets did not yet exist. But uh, what I want to talk about but is... The quote felt true. It felt <laughs> like that's what FDR did. Probably. Right. Um so w- w- let's see what let's see what FDR really did say in the wake of uh, the economic crisis of 1929. President Roosevelt was too sick to go up to the Capitol and give his annual State of the Union address. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. It has been my custom to deliver these annual messages in person. So he gave it from the White House over the radio. When it was over, he asked the newsreel cameras to step into his room because he wanted the American people to see one particular part of his speech. The President of the United States then took the radical step of proposing a second Bill of Rights to the Constitution. In our day, certain economic truths have become accepted as self-evident. A second Bill of Rights under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, regardless of station or race or creed. Among these are the right to a useful and remunerative job, the right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation, the right of every farmer to raise and sell his products at a return which will give him and his family a decent living. The right of every businessman, large and small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom, freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies at home or abroad. The right of every family to a decent home, the right to adequate medical care, and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health. The right to adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and unemployment, the right to a good education. All of these rights spell security. And after this war is won, we must be prepared to move forward in the implementation of these rights to new goals of human happiness and well-being. For unless there is security here at home, there cannot be lasting peace 
in the world. Roosevelt would be dead in little over a year. He would not live to see the end of the war, nor would there be any enactment of his new Bill of Rights. Had he lived and succeeded, every American, regardless of race, would have had a right to a decent job, a livable wage, universal health care, a good education, an affordable home, a paid vacation. and an adequate pension. None of this would come to pass. No American would be guaranteed any of this. But the people of Europe and Japan got every one of these rights. How did that happen? After the war, the people of Roosevelt's administration went overseas to help rebuild Europe. During this time, new constitutions were written for the defeated nations of Germany, Italy, and Japan. The Italian constitution guaranteed all women equal rights, and this was 1947. The German constitution said that the state has the right to take over property and the means of production for the common good. And here's what we wrote up for the Japanese. All workers have a right to organize into a union, and academic freedom is guaranteed. For the next 65 years, we would not become the country that Roosevelt wanted us to be. So the commentary there was from Michael Moore. That was from Capitalism, A Love Story. Um, <clears throat> And I, I let it play because the obviously if the American planners and Roosevelt's people um, basically created a new society in, in Europe and Japan, that means that we could do it here. Uh, and so the question is, what is to be done? The Leninist question remains. So this next article is uh, from Teen Vogue magazine. I would only add there that what's what's um, what remarkable about that second Bill of Rights and that uh, speech from Roosevelt is just to those of us today how radical that sounds, right? Mm -hmm. it, it seems impossible, right? But it's obviously it's not. But also it speaks to the, just how far to the right, how reactionary, how conservative, et cetera, this country has moved, such that someone like a Joe Biden yeah. seems like a reasonable Democratic candidate, which is craziness right and mm -hmm. so i mean that's right to your point so if we're in this situation and we're facing potential extinction whatever climate and so on the crumbling of the society itself because it's unsustainable this path we're on what do we do right yeah what do we do so <clears throat> teen vogue uh a couple years ago maybe mm -hmm. the least likely source of hope on the left mm -hmm. Uh, has now become the bleeding edge of left-wing journalism in America. So, from Teen Vogue, January 24th, 2019, by Kim Kelly. 
everything you need to know about general strikes. The word strike seems to be on everyone's lips these days. Workers across the world have been striking to protest poor working conditions, to speak out against sexual harassment, and to jumpstart stalled union negotiations. And we just saw with the Los Angeles teachers' successful large-scale strike, which spans six school days, strikers have been winning. Despite the shot of energy that organized strikes have injected into the labor movement, many people aren't content with run-of-the-mill work stoppages or even with more militant wildcat strikes. As President Donald Trump's scandal-plagued government shutdown stretches into its fourth week and more than 800,000 federal workers struggle to survive sans paychecks, the words general strike have become, begun appearing with increasing frequency on social media and in a spate of articles. On January 20th, Association of Flight Attendants CWA President Sarah Nelson suggested that a general strike could potentially end the government shutdown. The fact that a labor union official is speaking about such drastic action now is very significant. For one thing, because there's not been a major U.S. general strike since the government cracked down on labor following 1946 Oakland general strike. Also, a general strike is incredibly mass is an incredibly massive undertaking. While many organized industry-specific strikes can comprise hundreds or even thousands of workers, a general strike could potentially involve millions. So, what does it all mean? How is a general strike different from a planned industry-specific work stoppage? Why are people interested in the idea now, and what would one look like in 2019? A general strike is a labor action in which a significant amount of workers from a number of different industries who comprise a majority of the total labor force within a particular city, region, or country come together to take collective action. Organized strikes are generally called by labor, labor union leadership, but they impact more than just those in the union. For example, imagine this, the scenario if thousands in your town or city, no matter what their job was or whether or not they were in a union, got together and decided they can go on strike <clears throat> to protest um, police brutality, as happened in Oakland, California in 2011, after Iraq veteran Scott Olson was critically wounded by local police when they stormed the Occupy Oakland encampment. The community declared a day-long general strike that ultimately saw thousands of people shut down the port of Oakland, which was more of a symbolic protest, but it still got the job done. Though the concept has its roots, roots in ancient Rome's <clears throat> Cessio Plebis, one of the first modern general strikes took place during the Industrial Revolution in northern England in 1842, a time of great civil and social unrest as modern capitalism began to take hold and hierarchical class lines began to be drawn between employers and employees. General strikes played pivotal roles in the Russian Revolution of 1917 and the Spanish Civil War. And then in the U.S., general strikes have become almost common during the 19th and early 20th centuries, with examples taking hold in Philadelphia, 1835, St. Louis, 1877, Chicago, 1886, New Orleans, 1892, and Seattle, 1919, along <clears throat> and during the Great Railroad Strike of 1877. These large-scale actions were instrumental in securing crucial workers' rights that many of us take for granted today, from basic safety regulations to the eight-hour workday and the end of child labor. But those wins did not come easily. Historically speaking, the general strike is incredibly successful since it completely shuts down the functions of the economy, author and union organizer Shane Burley tells Teen Vogue. This is really the foundation of the power workers have under capitalism to withhold their labor and undermine capital 
because the general strike affects the economy so broadly. It gives workers a huge bargaining chip to make massive societal demands, not just in one workplace, but of capital across all sectors. As noted by Black Liberation and socialist author W.E.B. Du Bois, one of the country's most successful general strikes happened during the Civil War, when roughly half a million enslaved Africans escaped southern plantations and found the Union Army. In mass numbers of poor white Confederates deserted their posts, including Mark Twain, uh, two independent collective actions that together helped kneecap the Confederacy. More recently, a general strike in India saw 150 million workers across various industries demanding higher wages and union protections in what may well be the be history's largest general strike. In 2006, janitors in Houston made waves with a nine-week strike that piggybacked on a wave of wildcat strikes and school walkouts in response to H.R. 4437, a bill that sought to criminalize both undocumented people and anyone who offered them aid. The legislation ultimately failed. To this day, the idea of a master general strike remains both an ideal and a tactic that can be picked up by everyday people if and when they discover the power to do so. Andrew O'Connor, an editor at It's Going Down, an anarchist news and podcast platform, tells Teen Vogue. Uh, And as American history has shown, this tactic is one that has been used by the working class as a whole across lines of gender, trade, and geography. Organizers stress the importance of first building mutual aid networks and strong community systems to take care for people in the event of a mass labor action like a general strike before asking people to hit the streets. It's hard enough to go on a planned strike during <clears throat> union contract negotiations, and the Trump-controlled National Labor Relations Board is trying to make it harder. In those cases, workers at least have the support of their union and hopefully a strike fund to help cover bills. The resources and infrastructure needed to adequately care for those participating in a general strike are impossible to calculate. In addition, the 1947 Taft-Hartley Act, which was passed in the wake of the women-led 1946 Oakland general strike outlawed actions taken by unionized workers in support of workers at other companies, effectively rendering both solidarity actions and the general strike itself illegal. Just to intervene, why would they do that? Because it's so fucking powerful. So it's the <clears throat> anytime they outlaw this shit, it's because they're afraid, they're quaking in their boots uh, as capitalists about what could happen. Alana Levin, a former union organizer who teaches digital strategy as program director for New Media Mentors and is co-founder of Organizing 2.0, tells Teen Vogue that striking means not asking for permission in the first place. She's excited about the interest she's seen in the idea of a general strike, but warns that hastily planned action could end up harming more than it helps. If you're asking someone to strike, you have to be able to help them answer the question of how you will help them survive if they do. It's a question that has been asked and answered before, but it is a serious thing, she says. In reality, general strikes are generally led by the most marginalized groups because it is a way to wield power. O'Connor says self-organizing, self-organization is one of the most useful building blocks of any major worker action and adds that it's important to break down barriers between striker and supporter to craft a more cohesive, purpose-driven community based on class solidarity. As we saw with the current teacher strikes, which can be seen as literal general strikes across trade lines, collective and communal mutual, communal mutual aid and support from both picketers and community members, like school children, is key, O'Connor says. 
In some instances, workers also choose to strike by offering services for free. For instance, during many transit strikes and job actions, bus drivers and transit operators will refuse to collect money. We see many of these experiences playing out <clears throat> now with the shutdown for mass sick out strikes to services being offered for out of work employees. An organizer with the Industrial Workers of the World, IWW, who chose to remain anonymous for this story, tells Teen Vogue that one of the keys to unlocking those levels of support also lies in good old-fashioned community organizing and remembering how difficult it can be for people to take that step toward the picket line because of familial obligations or existing financial hardship. <clears throat> the way to actually figure this out is to do the work of labor and community organizing. And that is actually asking your coworkers and your neighbors about the material issues that affect them. How can you address those issues collectively? And if they think a general strike could work, what, what they would need to take that step, they said. Maybe it's childcare. Maybe it's a hardship fund to cover lost wages. Maybe it's just the support of the community. With the current government shutdown threatening to starve the poor through lack of SNAP funding and various bodies of federal workers already furloughed, we could be entering the kind of crisis that makes a general strike possible. So is it time for a general strike? We clearly have a whole lot to do before anyone goes calling for mass action, but activists around the U.S. are already hard at work on these kinds of mutual aid projects and community outreach efforts. We may not be ready yet, but the groundwork is already being laid. As bad as things are now, oppressed workers in the past have fought against even more daunting odds to take their power back. And if things get gnarly enough, it may happen again. So, <clears throat> so that is what is to be done. Yeah, at least in part, among other things. Right, um, and <clears throat> I think that I mean all. I basically I agree with everything. Right. Um, the same. <laughs> the um, and the, this is, I I and I want to link that kind of to the FDR thing because, in that. Um, capitalism, what is to be done, that Michael Moore movie, he points out how when FDR was president, there were wildcat strikes at some of the auto factories. And the the Michigan pigs and capitalists were trying to, they wanted to go in and you know just start fucking everybody up. So FDR called in the National Guard to protect them with weapons, protect the strikers. Mm -hmm. Uh which seems so out of reality for right. us today, yeah. but think about Bernie Sanders as president. Yeah. Maybe he wouldn't go that far. Maybe he wouldn't be able to, but right. if he could get anywhere near that, then maybe we live in a new world already. I totally agree. And I was only going to say, you know, maybe by way of wrapping up, there's a lot of stuff on the list for Medicare and climate change we should eventually get to. But um, the, I mean, you connected to, to all of these headlines something that Hillary Clinton had had done. Maybe she gets the last word on her show or something. But basically, um, she addresses the growth of socialism and sort of the millennials' sort of uh, esteem for it and how that's on the rise. And she says, well, can you blame them, basically? Right. Uh, well, let's do 10 more minutes. Can you do right. 10 more minutes? Sure. Okay. So um, <clears throat> I'll get to that in a second, but I just want to, like, on the same note, mm. talk about nurses rising up for Medicare for mm. all. So this is from April 29th, uh, 2019. Just waiting for the video to load. 
You should not have to choose between food, paying rent, and having health care. We believe health care is a human right for everyone. We're National Nurses United, the largest union of registered nurses in the country, at 150,000 registered nurses. When do we want it? Now! What do nurses understand about this issue that other people don't? Nurses are at the front line, and so they see every single day patients that have to cut their pills in half, have to make decisions on whether they can pay the rent or the mortgage. And what we see are the end result where they have had to make those decisions and are sicker and in the hospital longer because they couldn't afford their treatments. What made you want to use your personal time to become a political activist? We're dedicated to the health and welfare of our patients. That's what we do. And this is the only answer, Medicare for all? It has to be. I've been a nurse for over 40 years. My colleagues have been in nursing for over 25 and 30 years. We've seen what happens when people can't get the health care that they need. Why are you convinced that this is the answer? It has to be the answer because we know that it works. We know that it works for the system that's in place right now. We just want to expand it so that everyone is covered. So... Uh, you hear in there the refusal to accept any, it, this is not up for discussion. Mm -hmm. And that's how you have to be. I mean, it's the same language of a general strike. Um, the general strike article I read was from January, so it didn't cover the stop and shop strike, which cost stop and shop $100 million wow. for nine days of work stoppages. That's the only language that capital understands is, uh, is profit. And, and we noticed that did happen, too, when that article was being written during the, uh, what is it, the uh, flight attendants strike during the, the sort of, you know, whatever. I'm forgetting the context now. It's been so long, so much has happened. But basically, they threatened to go on strike. Right. Um, and it worked. I mean, it was done in days. Yeah, th you know? the hint of a strike right. was enough to it wasn't even an action end the story. government shutdown. That's right. And so <clears throat> along the lines of this nurses, uh, the nurses who are, you know, the bleeding edge of left unionism in America. Um, this is from the Congressional Hearings on Medicare for All. So this dude has ALS, and uh, he's addressing Congress. Uh, so you're gonna Chairman McGovern and members of the committee, thank you for inviting me to testify today. This is Addie Barkin. My name is Audie Barkin. For 20 years... Since I was a freshman on my high school debate team, I have been giving speeches and presentations on topics like health care reform and the federal budget. But never before have I given a speech without my natural voice. Never before have I had to rely on a synthetic voice to lay out my arguments, convey my most passionately held beliefs, tell the details of my personal story. Three years ago, Rachel and I felt like we had reached the mountaintop. We had fulfilling careers, a wonderful community of friends and family, and a smiling, chubby infant boy. We could see decades of happiness stretching out before us. The sun was shining and there was not a cloud in sight. And then, out of the clear blue sky, we were struck by lightning. ALS. Most of its victims are in their 50s and 60s. I was 32. The fundamental truth is that too many corporations make too much money off of our illnesses, and they are spending gazillions of dollars lobbying and campaigning and fighting to stop us from building something better. But this is an absurd way to run a healthcare system. 
GoFundMe is a terrible substitute for smart congressional action. Like so many others, Rachel and I have had to fight with our insurer, which has issued outrageous denials instead of covering the benefits we paid for. We have so little time left together, and yet our system forces us to waste it dealing with bills and bureaucracy. That is why I am here today, urging you to build a more rational, fair, efficient, and effective system. I am here today to urge you to enact Medicare for all. So, <clears throat> I think um, what's happening is, I think the system's now breaking apart. Like, I don't, I don't think that, like, we've... We've just, you know, exposed Joe Biden for what he is on the show. Um, we didn't do it. Other people did it. But, I mean, like, there's no way to put him forward as a serious candidate for president, as some sort of, like, person who represents leadership. Mm -hmm. um, and it, as people began to coalesce around Medicare for All organizing, um, the simplest terms you know, in the simplest terms, it just like negates any sort of like counter argument mm -hmm. like that, that dude eloquently just demonstrated. And there's nothing you can say to respond. Right. Nothing. And so, it, which has us with even Hillary Clinton, um, you know, the most, uh, one of the, one of the arch enemies of, uh, the left functionally arguing that socialism is basically the only answer kind of uh, perverse point where a lot of the opposition and understandable opposition to capitalism is rooted in the way it is operating now to the disservice of the community at large, of the employees, of even suppliers and others. Comrade so Clinton. I think that there will be this debate, and I hope it's not a cartoon debate. Um, you know, I hope those of us who defend well-regulated democratic capitalism, you know, come to the table, make the case, uh, and make the argument that those who are, you know, really worried and anxious and young people who feel like, well, what has it done for me lately? You know, I don't see it helping me. I don't, I can't get a good job. I don't see my, my future in this kind of an economy. We'll understand that we've been living to some extent with a distortion. And we've got to get back to uh, the way the economy should work where we really do have inclusive prosperity and people do rise and they don't get bottlenecked and feel like all their hard work and their efforts are no longer rewarded. So... She's literally making the argument for socialism mm -hmm. um, in the guise of making the argument for uh, renewed, reformed capitalism, right. which right. obviously is out of reach because it doesn't exist. It didn't exist in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, but the, there's, you know, nothing, there's nothing left for, there's no argument for the, for capitalism or the capitalists to make anymore. If, if there was, <laughs> socialism wouldn't be so popular. Jordan Peterson made it and he failed. <laughs> right. He failed miserably. And, and there's a proof of like an internal insurrection emerging as well. So, um, just to hit a couple more of these young Democrats is <clears throat> from the intercept young Democrats at 40 college campuses call for the boy boycott at the DCCC. Um, 
the Harvard College Democrats released a letter Wednesday calling for national boycott of donations to the party's House campaign arm, urging people instead to contribute to individual candidates until the DCCC reverses the rule. By Wednesday afternoon, 26 chapters of the College Democrats from Spielman to Arizona State had undersigned the letter calling the policy regressive and undemocratic. Oh, this is in reference to they're boycotting the DCCC committee over the decision to cut off vendors working for primary challengers. By Thursday, 14 more had joined, according to Hank Sparks, president of the Harvard College Democrats. The DCCC released guidelines last month for vendors working the 2020 election cycle, requiring them to agree to not work with any candidates challenging Democratic incumbents. The committee has stood by the change, even as progressive leaders met privately with Chair Sherry Bustos and slammed it. Former committee chair Ben Luhan has distanced himself from the policy, and House Democrats, including Reps Ted Liu for former DCCC vice chair and current vice chair of House Democrats LGBT, LGBT Equity Caucus, et cetera, AOC, et cetera, uh, even Joe Kennedy voiced their opposition. The rule would financially deter and greatly disadvantage <clears throat> new voices in our party who are often younger and come from underrepresented and historically marginalized communities and identities. The student letter reads, primary challengers are essential to ensure that the Democratic Party is continually held accountable to the needs of our constituents. The blacklist policy is undemocratic and antithetical to our values of inclusion and diversity. I won't finish it, but um, if the college Democrats are doing this, that means the Democratic Party in its corrupt form has no future. So... College Democrats historically are just a very toe the line uh, type of people, and you know for better or worse. But here we see they're seeing that they're being being boxed out of the party. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> I mean, the Harvard College Democrats is the most establishment probably in the country, and even mm -hmm. and they are leading the charge to reverse mm -hmm. this rule. So, um, the Democratic Party and Zizek said this. We've said it on the show. The fate of the world, the fate of the country, depends on what happens in the Democratic Party. That's the, where the real ideological um, debate is happening. Right. And so, it just like it, to kind of buttress this a little bit. Um, it, relatedly, and getting back to kind of the counterpoint of like even within Christianity, even within like the the space of in the past, you know, under neoliberalism, the most regressive cultural uh, aggregation of people, you know, in, in modern times, perhaps, uh, this story is, or this, I'll just read the headline, entire Methodist confirmation class declines to become members over anti-LGBTQ policy. So they're now refusing even to call themselves Christians. The, you know, if they're, I've heard maybe no more Christian move than that. Um, so I wanted to play this Zizek thing at a lecture recently, post-Peterson debate. Today. I think I already talked about it, so I'll be very brief here. Uh, oh, we have time, okay. Uh, uh, I like the girl. You can guess whom. Greta from Sweden. Mm -hmm. You know why? Because I'm so shocked how much that propaganda she got now. You know who really disappointed me? Angela Merkel, I thought she would be, she said the worst possible thing about a month ago. Typical paranoia. She said, this girl is just autistic, a little bit crazy. Who knows who is behind her? Probably Putin. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, I mean, here, reading all this about Putin, I'm tempted, but don't be afraid, I will not to become. No, but what I'm saying is that if 
isn't this Greta pure case of toxic masculinity? Arrogant, I like her basic, I think her autism is a positive, it's not in spite of being autistic, she, no, it's because she's autistic. What does her autism mean? To put it in very simplistic terms, she doesn't buy this bullshit usual, which is, yeah, we are in trouble, ecology, but then it begins. We shouldn't act too fast. We don't know it yet if it's serious. Of course, fuck it. We will never know it. We will know it for sure when it will be too late, you know. Or uh, this, uh, it's more complex and so on and so on. You know, to use, she's pure anti-fetishist. If we define fetishism as je sais bien mais quand même, I know very well, but. She, Greta, knows very well that we, everyday ecologists, we know very well science is, scientists are telling us, even incidentally, uh, Jordan Peterson, he then admitted there that he is skeptical about certain aspects of global warming, but then he admitted, privately then he told me, that, for example, what is happening in our oceans, better not to think about it. So much plankton dying and so on, and how this will affect the entire change and so on. Uh, so, uh, so uh, uh, you know, her point is simply, je sais bien, I know and fuck you with your, but, but nonetheless, there is no nonetheless. That's her basic, very, and she, her point is not, we really know, of course. We don't know many things, but for me, when those who doubt global warming say, but we don't know it for sure, I never got it. As if this means, oh, so we can rest a little bit more to see. No, this throws me in an even more panic. We don't know it. Maybe, you know, because there is a lot of fetishism here as work. Maybe this is something more fundamental, not simple ideology. But you know how we translate our anxiety into precise numbers, which are pure superstition, like we say, what is now usually, 2% warming. If it's 2% or less, it's okay. If it's, um, we don't know. Maybe 1% degree, sorry, not percent, Celsius will already be a catastrophe. Maybe 3% we will survive it. But that doesn't make it easier. That's, make it, that, that's what makes it even worse. And here also, don't trust economists, not just because he is, I'm a dirty old guy, sexually attractive, that Alexandria Ocasio, Ocasio. Ah, 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 you admit yeah. it, no, don't, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know when she proposed that green, green New Deal or what? And I was so shocked, all these economists claimed this is spending money, non-productive way, economic catastrophe, are they crazy? If there is something to learn from the 20th century history, is that non-productive spending of incredible amounts of money always worked. Look, Second World War, read a good history of it. The crisis was not over in late uh, uh, 30s. America got out of crisis only through World War II, where they spent, in a way which was not immediately productive, arms, extraordinary amounts of money. And you know what economic miracle this was? Do you know that in '45, United States, even if you discount arms, if you take just 
ordinary consumerist objects. In 45, they produced more of them than ever. Uh, or take, unfortunate example, take Reagan, take Bush. They were printing and spending money for arms like crazy. And I'm saying I'm really becoming a kind of ecological militarist. Why not use ecology as an excuse for declaring new national emergency, spend incredible amounts of money, and I claim economically it would have worked. But okay, so let's go. Uh, uh, so, uh, so again, I am not uh, covering up problems here. Things are terribly uncertain. For example, did I already talk about this here? They have now some idea of spraying our entire stratosphere with some aerosols I don't know want to prevent uh, all those sun rays to hit the earth. Sounds nice, but it's so unpredictable what other processes you can trigger. But again, I hate people who claim, oh, so better do nothing. No, one thing is sure. If we do nothing, we are doomed. And so... <clears throat> Um, uh, just to contextualize that, when he's calling Greta an example of to toxic masculinity, he was that's in reference to an argument he was making about Antigone uh, in Greek tragedy being the ultimate example of toxic masculinity, and that toxic masculinity as defined by whatever, what is it, the American Medical Association now, um, or American Psychological Association. Uh, his argument is uh, part of what he was arguing was that these are sort of positive features of being able to act in the world um, and that we shouldn't and that th there are many examples of women exhibiting these uh, these traits that are like very progressive. So um, but just to kind of like so the last word here, I won't read the article, but um, well, two things. Corbin launches a bid to declare a national climate emergency. So we have a emerging world leader uh, calling for national climate emergency in Britain, which will then obviously open the door for that to spread around Europe and to the U.S., hopefully. Um, but that... Uh, where's it? Here we go. Um, this is from an above-the-fold article in the Grand Forks Herald. A longtime research leader says addressing climate change is the Christian thing to do. So... <clears throat> What we see now is the penetration, I think, ideologically of climate change. The the idea of like another thing Zizek mentioned too was like Trump declaring a national emergency about the border wall. Some like some right wingers who are intelligent um, from this tactically were were worried that well, what if we get a left progressive leader in there and he says, okay, we need a national emergency now. We have the precedent to do a green new deal. Well, good. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think like, I think fundamentally things are shifting even like in the most sort of backwaters, like where we live, mm -hmm. uh, and things are opening up even from this Christian perspective. So, uh, something obviously we can expand on f in the future. Sure. Even in banal ways, I agree. It's, um, we take those little victories where we can. Well, they're, so. they're not little victories. They're opening, they're cracks. Sure. <laughs> we'll take enough. the cracks. Yeah. Sure.